Hey guys, welcome to the Launch and Scale podcast. If you are watching on YouTube, awesome, please be sure to subscribe. Sarah Shaw and I connected through an online community we are a part of, and she reached out because she saw that I worked with launching physical products, and she told me a bit about what she did, and I was like, man, the amount of times that this question and topic comes up with my audience, I like, I, I need to get you on the show. So as soon as I launch, launch and scale with a new podcast, I she was one of the first people I asked to come on the show. So um, today we're going to be, and I'm going to let Sarah really get into um, what she does and how she's gotten to where she is, but she has an amazing track record getting her products into the hands of celebrities around the world, uh, how to successfully get into brick and mortar stores. So the retail side, but not only that, but how to make sure that even when you're placed in retail, that your products are actually selling. And so today we're really going to be um, navigating the conversation of if you have a product and you are considering retail or even if you are currently in retail and you're not moving the inventory like you want, some really best practices on um, straight from the horse's mouth essentially because she's had amazing success with her own product lines and her, her clients to be able to get really awesome results in the retail space. So Sarah, I'm just so happy that you're here. So thanks for coming on the show. Of course, would not miss it. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I could do a little 60-second intro of, of who Sarah is and what she got into, but I really think it's best if you just um, go into it. Like, who is sure. Sarah Shaw? What's your work? What do you do? Yeah, so um, I started out um, working in costumes for movies when I got out of college, and I ended up coming up with an idea for a handbag and just quit my job one day and decided to launch this full force. And it was through a lot of trial and error and pretty much every mistake under the sun that we got into over five years, we were selling into over 1200 stores and doing, I would say the last three years, probably close to a million dollars a year in sales. And really what helped to perpetuate that and to really get it going was getting products to celebrities. And I started to do that maybe in year two. And, you know, you'd think coming from a costume background, it'd be like, Ooh, get, get your stuff to celebrities. You have all these phone numbers and whatever, but I didn't. And it never even occurred to me um, until a friend who I had been working with for years in film told me that she was forced, you know, forced to use Donna Karen clothes on a film. And so she's telling me this story and complaining and I'm like, ding, 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 right? This is, you know, what am I doing? Like I should be gifting celebrities and getting my stuff in movies. And if Donna Karen's doing it, then I should be doing it. So that was kind of what led me down that track. And once we started getting products to celebrities, it really doubled our sales. I would say in year three, we went from half a million to a million by the end of that year and just really started to perpetuate the sales and stores really wanted us. And we could use that in stores, you know, little displays. Um, we could use it to push it out, you know, to our mailing list and online sales. And it, it was really helpful. And so I did that. And then I um, ended up losing that company after 9-11 when my investors pulled out and I just couldn't recover. So I ended up closing it at the end of 2002. And then I launched a patented closet organizer for handbags and, you know, basically started over because I was in the gift market and not in accessories anymore. And that was a little hard to swallow. But in two years, we did half a million in sales with one product in 12 colors. 
And so I was a one hit wonder and just went back to doing the same things that I had done prior, you know, but better, stronger, faster at that point and getting, getting that product to celebrities. And even though they weren't walking down the street, you know, or wearing it to an, you know, movie opening or something, it was in their closet. We still were able to get a lot of celebrity placements in magazines and, you know, and we're selling to 400 stores by the end of two years. And so after that, people started asking me how I did it. And so I started consulting. And then so for 10 years now, I've been teaching people my sales strategies and how I do it and the method behind it all. And that's kind of where I am today. And it sounds like you're the, the uh, I'm not sure if it's a rare example, but you started offline and then used that to build a, a strong online presence for products versus doing the opposite where a lot of listeners now are probably looking online and then to take it offline. Mm-hmm. So well, there was no online back in 1997 when I started my handbag line. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, buyers weren't even on email probably until like 2000. Do you think it's been an advantage to you to start offline, going to retail and doing it the old-fashioned way, as opposed mm-hmm. to starting online and then going to retail? Well, I've been doing it that way for so long, going online now and then moving to retail that it seems kind of like par for the course these days. You know, everybody launches a website because it's so easy to get your site up. All you need is some descriptions, a shopping cart and some photos, right? And then boom, you've got a website. And then it really becomes part of your marketing plan at that point, whether you're launching it on Kickstarter or you're going straight out to stores or both, or you've got some massive email list or you, you know, paid to build it or whatever the method is. Yeah. Now, are you a fan of going straight to the retailer or doing wholesale like distribution, wholesale, or is it a combination of both that you do? Well, I would say you have to do a combination of both these days because I don't really, you know, it's really difficult to um, predict how much you could make online, right? You can say, you know, once you start running Facebook ads or you've got, you know, Google ads or whatever you're doing and you've got a certain amount of traffic coming to your site and you're getting a percentage of sales and you can sort of figure that out, right? You know, for every thousand dollars I spend, I make X number of dollars, right? So you can, but you can't a hundred percent count on that, right? Because people are fickle, right? I love you today, hate you tomorrow. Um, but you can gauge that. But with stores, what I find going wholesale is that once you have a relationship with the store, you're pretty much guaranteed if it's selling, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) If it's moving, that they're going to order four to six times a year. So it it starts to become predictable, right? How much money you can make. And I really learned this with my second company, with my handbag hanger, because I didn't have any sales reps for the first time in my life. I wasn't doing trade shows. I just decided to ixnay all of that. I was like, I'm just taking it in house. We're going to do it ourselves. You know, this online thing is so awesome, right? I had taught myself how to use the internet, really. I'd built my own website at that point. And, um, you know, in 2006, when I launched that business, you know, there wasn't a lot going on yet in social media. (laughs) And so it was really, I was dependent on celebrities and magazines 
to help me with that boost to get into stores. And I think that it's that, um, and I did have a massive email list that was left over from my handbag company, maybe about 7,000 people. And, and so, you know, they were interested in my next launch, but I didn't have to, you know, essentially I didn't have to run ads to build a mailing list at that point because I kind of carried it over. It was old, but people were still interested in what Mm -hmm. I was doing. So, you know, I was able to use that, but I think now to go from selling on your website, which you have to do, or I would suggest Mm -hmm. doing that. Um, And because at that point you own the customer, right? So if you're not, and to me, that's always been one of the most important parts about having a business is you're really only as good as your email list. You know, I mean, I don't care if you have 50,000 people, if none of them are buying from you, then it's crap, right? Get rid of it, move on, find the right people. But if you have people that are purchasing from you and love what you're doing, you know, getting um, organic interest from people, I think is the best way to go. So, and also those people who purchase from you are going to leave reviews if you ask for it, are going to tell their friends, you know, you can come up with contests and you can really work that list. Whereas when you go into wholesale, you have to train yourself to have that predictable system where you know, if I pick up the phone and I call 10 stores, how many am I going to close, right? It sort of works the same as Facebook ads or something. You know, you spend $1,000, how much are you going to make yeah. in revenue? No, for sure. And so for those that are thinking, can you just please ask her about the celebrity side? I'm going to get to the celebrity <laughs> side. I really do want to focus on the the getting into that first store and even managing the sale. Yeah. So as a example, I worked with a guitar hardware company. It's an amplifier that connects to your guitar that you can play it anywhere you want. And so we started getting into retailers. And what the founder wanted to do was to start, instead of going straight to wholesale, he wanted to do boutique stores locally in Toronto so that he can manage, kind of have a look at and work with the sales reps to make sure they could help sell the product and really make sure that the the tests that we did in a couple of local stores allowed us to know how that the Jamstack was selling and make sure that we had a good first run so that we could have a case study to then go out and bring to other retailers. So that leads me mm. to wonder, like, if you get into a store, actually, no, there's, there's quite a few questions here. So first question is like, how, who should you start with? Should you start with a Walmart if that's your demographic? So massive big box store, or should you start with boutique where you have that one-to-one connection and relationship with the the store owner? Like, yeah, I, I mean, I think you have to start at the small store level. So whether it, you know, the boutique level, right, is gift shops, stationary stores, you know, could be a music store that's just owned by one person, right? It's not a chain um, and it's not Guitar Center or something, right? And and so you get your feet wet, but a lot of it is also, so you're going to, you want to get your feet wet because you need to learn, right? And learn the process, learn what it is that you're missing in your training, you know? Do you need to train people a specific way? Do you need to give them some specific information? Do you actually have to, do you make them a video and all the salespeople watch the video? You know, whatever that process is. Um, But also most of the big stores are going to want to see proof of concept. You know, so if you say to somebody, you know, yes, you know, hi Walmart, we're selling tons on our site, 
then if you can show them, you know, proof of sales for that, then they might do a test, right? Like I have a client right now who's doing a test in Walmart. She went to their open call, but they're only selling it online. They're not testing it yet in the store. And so, you know, that th these big shops will, and big chains will do tests however they see fit. You know, even QVC sometimes will test your product online before they put mm -hmm. you on TV. So, you know, the internet has made it possible because they all have huge mailing lists so they can quickly interact with people and see how your product is selling. But that is to say, you never want to let it go at that point. So if you, even if you are doing a test in, let's just say, like your guy with Jim the yeah. Yeah. Um, music with, yeah. So he would want to drive as much traffic as he could to the store. So that was one of the techniques that we always used was the minute we got a new store, we would just massively email our list, you know, Hey, if you're in New York city or if you're in, you know, Des Moines, Iowa or wherever it was, you know, go check out our stuff at this store. And we'd really mm -hmm. promote the heck out of it because you want at that point, you want to forget that you have an internet site and you want to push everyone who's within a hundred miles to go to that store and help mm -hmm. with your sales. And the same thing is if you get something online in a bit, you know, a test in a big store or a big chain, you really want to push and drive that traffic there. Like nobody's I don't business. know if you have personal experience with this, but with, um, they want traction. So let's say it's a Walmart and the product owner says, we've just raised $2 million on Kickstarter. Would you, do you know if that would be enough social proof or do they see, want to see more um, regular predictable revenue that comes into your site over like a two to three month period? I think they would go either way. You know, I think if they thought the product had legs for their customer, that gotcha. that would be enough okay. social proof. Cool. Yeah. So when you are in a boutique agency, let's talk about the, the cycle from how you even get into the store to how do you make sure that the product is actually selling so that you get reorders. So yeah, how yeah. do we do that? So, well, so once you get into a store, sort of harking back to what I was just saying about sending your email subscribers, you know, and a notice about it, but it's, you know, looking to see if you can tell, um, like with my handbag company, we started when people signed up on our list, we actually asked them, it wasn't required, but we asked them to fill in the state that they lived in mm -hmm. on the form. So it wasn't just an email address. It was, you know, I don't remember what we said, like help us serve you better or something, right? You know, so tell us what state you live in. And that re actually really helped because when we had store openings, we could just sort people by state and then send them specific emails, you know, about a store opening in Chicago or whatever. And, and it really helped. But the one thing you want to be sure of is that you're giving the training to the employees, the salespeople, because if they don't know how to sell your product, mm -hmm. it's just going to sit on the shelf. I mean, if it's a t-shirt or a, you know, he's an article of clothing that's just normal, it doesn't do anything special. It's just going to hang with everything else. But like with my handbag hanger, for example, it was a brand new item to market. Nobody had ever seen it before, right? It was patented. And I really had a lot of explaining to do. So we made up a sell sheet and it, took us probably months to figure out when I say us, I had a part-time sales girl that worked for me two days a week. Um, woo. But um, so we came up with this idea of 10 ways to use it. 
And so we just made a little PDF and we sent it to the stores with the order and it really helped. You know, then we would call, you know, hey, just wanted to make sure you saw the PDF we put in there with the 10 ways to sell. Do you have any questions? Could you post this in the lunchroom or wherever your employees will see it and, you know, share it with them? And it really helped, I have to say, a lot. We got, I would say it probably boosted sales, maybe 20, 25%. Jeez. Yeah. That. It makes a lot of sense because if you physically can't be there at, right. in the store to every salesperson, so if you could train other people on not only why your product's cool, but the uses mm-hmm. of it, then they're really able. I think that the sales associate would fall in love with your product enough to say, hey, we have this really cool thing over here I think you need to check out. And then they start referring your product. Exactly. And it well. gives them something to talk about because mm-hmm. not every sales girl is, you know, the most intelligent person probably on the planet. I mean, not that we all are, but, you know, they're not a rocket scientist. And so it's, you know, giving people in sales some kind of tool to sell your product. It just helps them be better at what they do. They could be a phenomenal salesperson, but if they don't know enough about your product in order, you know, maybe there's 12 different types of people that could use it. You know, it looks like something for a mom, for example, but, you could buy it for an aunt, a sister, you know, your grandma, your next door neighbor, people you don't know very well because it's not a personally personal item. You know, what? it's not like you're buying soap or lotions and potions, right? And that's obviously much more personal. But when it's a product that's, you know, that could have other legs other than just the obvious, I think people really need help. Makes sense. So I'd like to look at, a case study where this is pretend, um, you have an awesome product. You, it doesn't matter if you did Kickstarter or maybe you're just starting online, but it's that first retail store that you're calling and you really want to get into. And you understand as an entrepreneur that there's a lot of competition for shelf space and buyers usually get pitched quite a bit. So how do Mm -hmm. you, how do you get their attention with newer products that may not have a lot of track like traction yet? Mm-hmm. Well, the one good thing is that everyone's always looking for the next bread slicer. So, you know, you want, you have to keep in mind, I think a lot of people fall into the kind of like, Oh, why would anyone want my product? You know, and that, you know, when you're thinking about whether it's stores or online or magazines or whatever, and, and I think it's you, that you kind of just have to come out of your shell and say, everyone's looking for their next bread slicer. Why not my product? And so you have to go into it with that attitude. And I think, you know, like I used to have to kind of, I don't know, get my, psych myself up a little bit with, with when I was going to make sales calls, because I just never really liked to do it. And it's, it can be tough, right. To contact these stores. But I think that, it's the consistency in your contact with them and that it's, you know, cause it often takes, can take seven to 10 points of contact with somebody before they're going to buy anything from you. So whether it's, you know, even if somebody comes to your website and saw one of your ads on Facebook or wherever, and is like, Oh, this looks really cool. I want this bread slicer. Right. And then the phone rings and they quickly had signed up for your mailing list, but they didn't get the email or it went to spam. They forgot about it, but you have their email address, right? Mm -hmm. Because they signed up, which is what you want. And right. That's your goal. And so it's your job at that point to 
keep marketing to them. And it's the same with stores, right? So you kind of think about how you market to your online shoppers and in that persistence, right, of pursuing the sale with them all the time. You've got the people who sign up for your list who never buy anything and the people who buy stuff and they're on your, you know, online shopper list, right? Versus just your email list. And it's the same with buyers. You want to find the right stores that you feel your target market shops in. So that's the key is making sure that you're the customer that you think you sell to actually shops in that kind of store and it lives in that city. So you kind of have to tick off the boxes. You know, do they live in that city? Do they, you know, shop in that gift shop or stationery store or whatever it is, right? Music store. <laughs> and and then once you've crossed all those T's, right, then it's getting the emails out to them and being specific and following up even before you actually pick up the phone. I think it's a good idea for, I would say, three to four emails, before you actually try to call them because you want to make sure that you've warmed up that cold connection. And, you know, obviously if you are using active campaign or whatever, you can spy on them and see that they've opened your email or possibly clicked on a link or looked at your line sheet or whatever you're pitching at that point. And then that just gives you a little fuel, right? We're not going to say, Hey, I've been watching you click on my links. Um, You know, it's more, Hey, you know, have you seen the, had a chance to look at the emails we sent you and you know very well that they already have. So it's most likely they're going to know who you are when you call. Yeah. And the, so with a cold contact to a buyer is the, are you sending, is that first email you're sending and the three to four emails prior to a phone call, are these emails where you're trying to get their attention and Mm -hmm. like, Hey, I have this cool product. I'd love to schedule a call with you. And then they ignore you. So you keep trying and then you pick up the phone. That's yeah. And with the hopes that they've opened that you can spy on them. Right. And they've opened your emails and hopefully clicked on your line sheet or clicked on some images, maybe even downloaded it. Good stuff. What are like, what are buyers looking for? Often they're looking for something new or something to complement something that's hot that they already sell. Okay. So it is probably best in, in my, like my program with my clients. Um, I heard this phrase from Seth Godin. I forget which one of his thousands of books it was, but why FM it's what's in it for me. And mm-hmm. that's the kind of marketing that speaks to everyone. So yeah. good marketing will always frame it in terms of what is in it for the customer. So yeah. in terms of, a best practice, be it a phone call or that first connection with a buyer, understanding what they're looking for, what could be a really good tip that grabs their attention that is not, hey, I have this amazing product that you need to look at. It's like, what's a good practice for reframing it into their benefit? Mm. So a couple things. You can quickly state the benefits of your product, you know, but, but what I always think kind of drives at home is that you've done your homework. You know, you weren't just like, oh yeah, I saw this store in, you know, L magazine and it looks good for me, but then you've never been to their site. You don't even know what other brands they sell. But if you can go to the website, you can say, oh, I see that you carry, you know, splendid teas. So, and my, my jeans go really well with splendid teas and they, you know, they fit the same type of figure or, or whatever you're saying about it. Right. So, um, you want to find a way to relate to the buyer. And if you can say, I saw you sell XYZ brand, 
then at least they know that you've actually checked out their store. You've either been in it or you have looked at it online and it just brings you another step closer. So I always try to find a way to just kind of get closer and closer to the buyer so that you're warming up the cold, the cold call essentially with these series of emails. But then when you actually talk to them, you can say things that you've observed about what they sell or who their customer is, or, you know, um, I saw your store in Elle magazine and it just, you know, I checked out your store and I saw that we sell a lot of the same, you know, you sell a lot of the products that sell in the same stores that I sell in. And so it, you can figure out a way at that point to connect with them on a deeper level. Cause it's very targeted at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So awesome. Um, I'd love to shift the conversation more to the celebrity side. Um, before I do, is there anything else you wanted to mention in the retail side of things or. Mm, I think, um, I think that it's best. I mean, I always find kind of one of my best practices is to chunk the calls so that when you're kind of in that sales mode that you keep going with it, you don't just, you know, call one store and then move on to pitching, you know, posting on social media, but that you kind of find some time during the day. If you're really serious about selling into stores, it takes time, right? I mean, I, yes, we were in 400 stores at the end of two years with my one product, which was pretty, pretty good. And it was, but it, it, I would say we, I probably spent mm, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, four to six hours a day on the phone and then reserved Monday and Friday for, you know, getting email campaigns set up and, you know, rescheduling all my social media posts and, and all the other things that I needed to do, um, designing new stuff or, you know, whatever I needed. Um, but, but finding that time and just really, deciding that that's a goal and then scheduling that in and chunking that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't expect that answer, but that is gold. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Because I think what you said in there is setting expectations that this doesn't happen overnight and Mm -hmm. you have to be consistent with it every single week and that you, um, I'd love to that you do it the way of getting on the phone with people. Cause I think a lot of e-commerce entrepreneurs may fall victim to I'll just hide behind my inbox and, mm-hmm. and keep it in the inbox side. And I think that you really need to have that personable, relatable experience because that is ultimately a relationship with these retailers and buyers that you really want to establish when you're just getting started. Right. Totally. Yeah. And, and I would say that 90% of store buyers are not going to buy without talking to you. For sure. Yeah. So, so I know, so the, um, celebrity side of things, when I think of gifting product to celebrities, I think I'm going to have to spend a lot of money to get someone to wear my piece, my product. Can you, can you dispel that myth and walk through like what that process, like how you can actually get a celebrity to wear something mm-hmm. through gifting. So I, I mean, with my handbag line, we got stuff to over seventy celebrities, and I never paid for one placement. Um, and I've never had a client pay a celebrity, you know, over the last ten years. And really, it's just finding the right celebrity for your product. Like, let's say you make a diaper bag, right? So you want to look for new celebrity moms or new to be celebrity moms. Um, And 
you can just contact them, ask if you can send it along as a gift, um, knowing that they're probably getting tons of baby gifts, but they might just love your bag, or maybe they don't ever want to be seen with the same bag twice, you know, or they've got yours in the car and they've got another one on their stroller or whatever the situation. But you have to, again, it kind of harks back to what we were saying that you have to just be determined, right. To, to do this. And it's, um, it's finding the celebrity contact, um, and you can get all that information on contactanycelebrity.com and, and writing them a letter um, saying that you want to give it to them because of X, Y, Z reason, right? Again, finding the benefit for the recipient <laughs> and what's in it for me, right? Or for you. And, and then um, sending it to, you know, asking their gatekeeper if you can send it along, and usually they'll say yes. Um, there are certain celebrities like Oprah does not take gifts. <laughs> um, I can't imagine how many she would get. Yeah, um, <laughs> that you have to submit to her magazine. So, um, but you know, and and there you'll find there are certain celebrities at certain times that don't take gifts. Right? If if a, if a musical artist is on tour or something for a year, their people are not going to take gifts for them at that point. Uh, it's just too much of a hassle. But, you know, yeah. so looking at the person's life and seeing, you know, if you see that some new celebrity mom is always wears pink or something, well, and you have a pink bag, then send her the pink one. Don't send her the black one. So you want to just show that you're relating to them, you know, because they're just people too. They just happen to be famous for a living, right? Yeah. They have all the same bodily functions that we do and they, you know, go out to dinner and their kids cry and whatever, right? It's they're just normal people and you have to find a way to relate to them. So when I do influencer marketing in the past or no, just influencer marketing, like um, what I do with pitching and you could totally say if this is right or wrong, but what I do with pitching, what I consider an influencer is I like to go after um, Instagram or YouTubers that are not necessarily celebrity level, but they're mid range on the followers. Um, and I say, Hey, we're launching this product or we have this product. I would love to send it to you. And something like PS, if you love it, it'd be great to collaborate on this. Whereas because I'm, I'm thinking maybe it's better to be upfront with what I'm hoping out of this mm -hmm. as opposed to just sending. Cause what it sounds like your email is more, I really just want to give this to you. No strings attached. So what's, what's the best way or wh which way do you recommend? So I do both. I, I recommend both. I mean, we, we do, um, you know, look for YouTubers that do videos, you know, they're what's in my purse or something. Right. And they whip out all the skincare or there it's like, what's in my purse. And then there's the, the bag, you know? Um, so yes, those kinds can be great. You can also do affiliate relationships with a lot of, um, online influencers, whether it's YouTube or Instagram or whatever, but, um, and, and a lot of, because a lot of them are looking for payday, I find, you know, and a lot of them want money up front to, to do it. They aren't just satisfied with the free product. Um, so whereas with celebrities, you're just taking a risk at that point because the potential value is so much higher. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and if you can, you know, get it into uh, on a TV show or in a movie or something like that, the, the financial reward can be so high. 
and and we're much higher, I think, than it can. I don't personally know anybody who has gotten a free placement online and you know can say they made fifty thousand dollars. Nope. So. Um, whereas, you know, when you can get a big, like a plus celebrity or even a B celebrity, um, to, to, you know, that just shows up wearing your product somewhere or using it. Mm-hmm. Um, a client of mine, we sent something, I don't know, like a year ago to Blake Lively, a makeup bag, and we heard nothing. And then she just showed up in a picture on Instagram with the bag in her car, putting her makeup on, you know, and so that photo is I mean, I haven't talked to you. It's an ex-client, but I haven't talked to her since she sent me the picture freaking out. Remember? <laughs> and, um, you know, and I was like, well, that's got to be worth at least 30000 you know, with her mailing list and her, you know, how Presence. she's really good at yeah. promoting and everything. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Because you don't th- – I don't know. Like, I th- – I've never even thought of doing celebrity placement until I met you, to be honest, because I'm th- just thinking, wow, if Instagrammers want $5,000 per post, what do celebrities want? But I think for me, it's just a, a misunderstanding of how celebrities are and really how to navigate that world. Yeah. And I think the more you, again, can research the celebrity, look and see who they are, what they wear, you know, if, if you make jewelry and the celebrity only wears their diamond earrings, don't send her earrings, right? Because yeah. if you've never seen a photo of her wearing any other earring, she's never going to wear them. They're going to go to the housekeeper, right? And, and, but, you know, and if somebody wears chunky necklaces, don't send them something delicate. You know, you want to stay with what they are. It's not your job to restyle them you know, that's their stylist job or their own job. Right. And so you have to kind of go with what you can see and know, you know, going through their stylist can be another avenue rather than just going directly through their manager or publicist or somebody and going directly to them. But if their stylist, you know, says, Hey, you should wear this, right. You know, most likely they're going to say yes. And, you know, and so it just, it's kind of a waiting game and it's a risk, right? But your product probably doesn't cost that much. You know, um, I'm not going to say to somebody who's, you know, making like a Rolex watch, you know, type thing, go ahead and send this thing that costs you $5,000, right? And on the whim and the hope that someone's going to wear it. But if it's something that's, you know, under $100, I think it's worth it. Um, Because like I said, you can make, you know, $30,000 on off of one photo of a celebrity, you know, if you know how to market it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it'd be so cool to see like what the average conversion rate on something like that would be like for every 10 bag sent, how many pick it up. But it's just, it, it depends on so many variables. It, it, there's no rhyme or reason, you know, it's just like when I had my handbag company, I was probably in InStyle magazine 20 times. My bet would be maybe that three of them were big hits. When I mean big, it's like we sold 900 of something, um, you know, whereas if you just sell some, I mean, there were times we sold nothing and sometimes we sold three, you know, it's, that's like, I always say to people, if you're, if you know, you have a big influencer placement coming up, don't prepare. It's, you know, yes, have a few, but don't say, oh gosh, you know, I know I'm going to get like 300 sales from this because honestly, you have no idea. And even if you've done it before and you got 300 sales, it doesn't mean that you will the next time. 
And, and so it's always better to say, you know, due to our placement in this or whatever, we're back ordered and order it now. Um, mm-hmm. And I've done that so many times and then people don't care, you know, they just want whatever the people are showing. Yeah. Even if they have to wait a little bit for it. Exactly. Yeah. I've so had people cool. wait up to two months for things. Wow. Yeah. In Kickstarter and land, that's like average. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Uh, or maybe even best case, but yeah, this has been fantastic. I feel like we can do like a three hour long <laughs> thing, but in saying that, um, I have two last questions. The first one is, do you have any famous last words? Um, I do. I have lots of famous last words. Um, So, so I kind of want to hark back to what I was saying before about having that determination to, you know, if you want to sell to stores, you have to make a commitment to that. It's not just like, Oh, I think I'll try to get into a store, but it's kind of, I would just say it's like that with your entire product business. I mean, I've been in the product world for over 20 years and the people that I see that make it big are the ones that are never that never let their guard down. They are on it all the time. They are coming up with new product. I mean, if you are selling the same thing over and over again for 10 years, I mean, that's why I finally closed my handbag hanger company because I didn't have any new ideas and it had a good 10-year run, but whoop, done, right? Move on, Grace, you know, take say goodbye gracefully and just keep going. And I see so many people trying to keep selling the same thing over and over. And yes, if there's 8,000 new stores, they've never seen it before. So they want it. But once you've, you know, got your stuff in, you know, 10,000 stores or something, there's really not anywhere else for you to go with it until you come up with something new. So don't stop innovating. Even if you have to do a tiny tweak on your product, you know, it's, it's kind of like how denim made such a huge hit in the world, right? I don't know, 20 years ago. And it's the pocket was this way. Then that pocket was this way. You know, these pockets go like this. And each one has a different shape for your rear end, right? And mm-hmm. has a different type of, uh, you know, different content of um, elasticity. And the waistband is higher, lower, medium, thicker, thinner, whatever. And everybody reiterates on the things that are doing so well. So take a look at what you have going in your own product line and see how you can reiterate that or you can think of another way people can use it. And so the more you'd keep reinventing yourself, I think the more successful you'll ultimately be as a designer. That's awesome. Yeah, great feedback. And last question is... Uh, I know there are some people thinking at this point, how can I get more of what she has? So if people do want to get in contact with you or learn more about your work or even working with you, what is a good place to send them? You can visit my website at uh, it's sarahshawconsulting.com. Excellent. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook as well under both of those. Good stuff. And this is, the link will also be in the show notes available at kirsten.com slash LSO8. This is episode eight uh, of the Launch and Scale podcast. YouTube, again, thanks guys for listening. And Sarah, thank you so much for spending the last 40 minutes uh, just educating and inspiring, really. My pleasure. It's good to be here. Thanks so much.
Are you launching a product on either Kickstarter or Shopify and you're feeling completely overwhelmed with the process? Hi there, my name is Kirsten, the CEO of Launch and Scale. To date, we've helped several online sellers sell millions of dollars online and scale their business from zero to seven figures by focusing on building an audience of fans that will actually convert into paying customers. If you're serious about building a seven-figure e-commerce brand with less time and less risk, you should check out our product launchpad. PLP is a proven accelerator that takes you step-by-step through the process of launching and scaling your product brand. Brands like the Monk Manual, Aberlite, Series Chill, Jamstack, and several others were all launched using our product launchpad. So if you'd like to be our next success story, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more. And for a limited time, we're offering a seven-day trial of the product launchpad for only $1. Again, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more.